This is Get Ready for Sunday, a more or less weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic churches. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I offer this time in hopes of clearing away some of the obstacles of time, translation, and cultural differences that, for the modern reader, can hide the deeper insights Scripture holds. This week's subject is the third Sunday of Lent. This means that it will be a more-than-weekly podcast week. Here's why. We are in the liturgical year cycle C of the lectionary, so this episode will look at the cycle C readings. But if you are in a parish where men and women are preparing to be baptized at the coming Easter vigil, you will probably hear the readings prescribed for year A on the third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of Lent. I'll post a separate episode this week titled The First Scrutiny, which will cover the Year A readings. In preparing this time of review, I am using published works of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators, but fair warning, all this otherwise good information does get sifted through my own tiny brain. As always, you can find the day's scripture readings on the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website, usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship, and from the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. If you exclude the Passion of Jesus narratives that we read on Palm Sunday and Good Friday every year, This Sunday, in Year C, gives us what is perhaps the most austere of the Gospel readings. It is a teaching about the urgent need for repentance. As usual, we start with the first reading, and it from the Hebrew Scriptures. This week's passage recalls the story of Moses' first theophany, his personal encounter with God, on Mount Horeb. Today's passage from the book of Genesis starts with Moses in Midian on the Sinai Peninsula. He is tending the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro. Moses had to flee from Egypt because he had killed an Egyptian. While making his escape through the wilderness, he met the woman who would become his wife, Zipporah, who was the daughter of Jethro, a Midianite priest. One day, while doing his shepherding job near Mount Horeb, which means wasteland, Moses saw a bush that was enveloped in flames. It was flaming, yet was not being consumed by the fire. Most of us are familiar with the story. There, Moses had a personal experience of conversing with God. In it, he receives his commission to return to Egypt and convince Pharaoh to release the Israelites from their centuries of enslavement. The pattern of this divine commissioning becomes a pattern for subsequent divine job assignments for prophets and leaders throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. First, there is a call from God to the individual. Next, the one being called or commissioned protests his unsuitability for the task set forth by God, or at least questions how he could possibly accomplish what is being asked. 
The deal is then sealed when God promises to be with the one commissioned as the specified work is accomplished. Quite obviously, the fire in the bush, which is described in the scripture as an angel, was more than a little unusual. These days, movie studios might put up a convincing fake fire that consumed no fuel, but at that time it could only be understood as a supernatural event. One comparison that should come to mind is the burning ember, the seraphim removed from God's altar and with which it touched the prophet Isaiah's lips to purify him for his prophetic role. Another example might be the pillar of fire, which was God's presence that lit the Israelites at night during the 40-year wandering of the Exodus. Last week, we heard about God's covenant with Abraham, where God appeared to Abraham as a smoking firepot. And, of course, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is often depicted as a spiritual fire, a supernatural fire, always in the Bible is an indication of God's divine presence. There are plenty of instances of this phenomenon in Scripture, but does that tell us something more than simply God is present? I think Bishop Robert Barron explains it well when he notes that this appearance of a flame that does not consume fuel, does not destroy anything of creation in order to be present, is a wonderful way for God to communicate his relationship to creation. It tells us God is not in competition with creation. God does not destroy what has come to be through his grace. Some of you, if you are like me, always looking for internal contradictions, might be asking, really, no destruction from God, huh? What about those slaughtered animal offerings? What about the great flood? Terrific questions. Hold on to them. I might get back to them a little later, probably in another episode. Finally, Moses asks to know God's name. Moses is apparently bright enough to anticipate his need for some evidence of credibility back in Egypt, even among his own people. Remember, Moses is a fugitive in hiding. You know that whole business of him killing an Egyptian? God's answer about his name comes to Moses in stages. The first claim, before Moses even asks the question, is, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So he's saying, I'm the God of your people's tradition. This is not, however, a name God instructs Moses to tell the Israelites. Instead, God says, I am who am. Then he adds, This is what you shall tell the Israelites. I am sent me to you. Ever have a little trouble understanding that one? Me too. God identifies as a great mystery, outside of time and space, with no beginning or end. The most instructive and helpful interpretation of this name that I've heard came from a Jesuit scripture professor when I was in grad school. He suggested God's self-identity was a way of saying, I am being itself, the very state of being. Many of us have heard and perhaps used the term supreme being to describe God, 
The church certainly has, and often still does. That is an adequate starting point, certainly. But again, recalling teaching from Bishop Barron, who says, in effect, God is not one being among all other beings. God is utterly other. Now, if that makes ozone leak from your ears, you're not alone. Most of the time, I settle for the admittedly inadequate but working understanding of God as the life force, as consciousness itself, yet not merely an impersonal force, but somehow very personal and intimately connecting all that is. The instruction to tell the Israelites, I am sent me, resonates with what Jesus will say numerous times in the Gospels. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. And on and on. And in Mark's Gospel, when facing the trial in front of the Sanhedrin, Jesus will be asked if he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus will answer, I am. The great I am has its roots all the way back to this story of Moses and the burning bush. Here is the day's reading from the book of Exodus. Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Leading the flock across the desert, he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in fire flaming out of a bush. As he looked on, he was surprised to see that the bush, though on fire, was not consumed. So Moses decided, I must go over to look at this remarkable sight and see why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw him coming over to look at it more closely, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. He answered, Here I am. God said, Come no nearer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your fathers, he continued, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. But the Lord said, I have witnessed the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry of complaint against their slave drivers. So I know well what they are suffering. Therefore I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and lead them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses said to God, but when I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, if they ask me, What is his name? What am I to tell them? God replied, I am who am. Then he added, This is what you shall tell the Israelites. I am sent me to you. God spoke further to Moses, Thus shall you say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered through all generations. 
So we move on to the responsorial, which today is taken from Psalm 103. In its full text, it both opens and closes with the same invitation. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's worth a moment, I think, to make sure that we have not become jaded toward that seemingly simple phrase. The Hebrew word nephesh is translated here as soul. It actually refers to the life force in the allegorical story of God breathing life into Adam. It is, at once, one's own animating share of the breath of God, and, as one commentator put it, the who of who we are. It is a call for every aspect of one's being to praise the one who is being itself. Moses is named within a verse that's not included here. The prayer specifically gives thanks for God's mercy in calling and enabling Moses to lead the exodus from Egypt. This prayer song takes note of the divine mercy granted despite the frequent disloyalty of the Jewish people. The extent of the grace and mercy received by this people is extolled in offering examples of analogies of seemingly incalculable magnitude, the compassion of a father for a child, the distance of east from west, and, the one included in our selection, the distance from heaven to earth, all seemingly incalculable in their magnitude. Here is the responsorial psalm. Today I will include the refrain only at the beginning and at the end. The Lord is kind and merciful. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all my being bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He pardons all your iniquities, heals all your ills, he redeems your life from destruction, crowns you with kindness and compassion. The Lord secures justice and the rights of all the oppressed. He has made known his ways to Moses and his deeds to the children of Israel. Merciful and gracious is the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in kindness. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so surpassing is his kindness toward those who fear him. The Lord is kind and merciful. Moving to our second reading, we find ourselves still connected to the storyline that began with Moses commissioning in today's first reading. And because it is Lent, this passage from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is also thematically linked to the gospel. Paul wrote to remind the Corinthians that the 40-year-long wandering in the desert that the Jews did was fraught with temptations to stray from God, and many fell victim to them. Despite God providing food, water, and protection for those ancestors, Nonetheless, many grumbled, complained, and fell into idol worship. Not all who entered the wilderness with Moses made it to the end of the journey. 
Paul admonishes the Corinthians to take seriously the warning that this represents. The warning to turn away from such ways to repent is the thematic link to the gospel we'll hear in a few moments. Now it is a reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was the Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the desert. These things happened as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil things as they did. Do not grumble as some of them did and suffered death by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, and they have been written down as a warning to us upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, whoever thinks he is standing secure should take care not to fall. All right, let's take a look at this as we kind of go through the significant verses from start to finish here. Our ancestors were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. Recall the cloud, the presence of God, accompanying the great caravan of the Israelites. Recall the parting of the sea to allow them to escape Pharaoh's army. All ate the same spiritual food. Recall the manna. All drank the same spiritual drink. Recall the water from the rock. Do not grumble as some of them did and suffer death by the destroyer. It was not God who struck them down. It was the destroyer, the Satan, the accuser. They were struck down by their choice of evil. They have been written down as a warning for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. This allows what seems to have been Paul's conviction that the second coming of Jesus the Christ would occur very soon within the lifetime of many of those who were now becoming followers of Jesus. Turns out he was wrong about that. Therefore, whoever thinks he is standing secure should take care not to fall. There will be a lot of discussion of that around the gospel reading to which we go right now. Today's passage from the Gospel of Luke sort of makes my head spin. None of it made any sense to me before finding some historical background for the beginning verses. And the last half of the passage didn't really come into focus for me until after reading people who are much smarter than I who had analyzed it. So if this passage seems disjointed and puzzling on the surface, I am with you. I'm going to read it halfway through, then stop to talk about that segment. After that, I'll read the second half and discuss it. So here we go from chapter 13 of Luke's Gospel. 
Some people told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. Jesus said to them in reply, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were greater sinners than all other Galileans? By no means. But I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those eighteen people who were killed when the tower at Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than everyone else who lived in Jerusalem? By no means. But I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all perish as they did. We could just get scared off with that last statement and stop listening. As New Testament scholar Dutter Brandt Petrie says, this is one of Jesus' less popular sayings. You will never see a bumper sticker of Luke 13.3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Having driven down some twisting, isolated roads in rural Kentucky, I'm not so sure Dr. Petrie is right about that. However, things do get more understandable if we pause for context, so let's do that. Jesus is addressing a very large crowd, so much of a large crowd that they are stepping on each other, trampling one another. Jesus hears reference to an event involving Pilate, the Roman prefect before whom he himself would soon appear. Not much detail is available about this incident. It seems to recall the slaughter of some Jews who were offering sacrifice, probably at the great temple in Jerusalem. Pilate had a reputation as a hostile, violence-prone governor. By ordering the killings of those who were offering sacrifices on temple altars, he had his troops defile the temple itself as well as murdering the ones who fell under their brutality. There is no indication that those killed were guilty of any infraction of either Roman or Jewish law. They were, apparently, common folks among the masses. Next, Jesus himself introduces reference to an apparent construction accident that killed 18 people in the Siloam suburb of Jerusalem. Again, those were people about whom no accusation of wrongdoing had been made, just common folk among the masses. It's important to remember that in this time, misfortune, disease, disfigurement, death, and other serious hardships were generally believed to be the result of and the punishment for some sin of those who were affected or some sin by a family member. Contrary to the common understanding in the day of Jesus, the deaths cited here had nothing to do with the existence of sin in a person's life. The preeminent issue was the need for personal transformation within one's own heart. That comes only through true repentance. Lent is a time dedicated to reminding us of just that. Longtime Tucson pastor, the late Father Bob Taminga, captured the essence of this thought in his very popular eight-word-long homily. Life is short. Heaven and hell last forever. Now back to the gospel passage. And he told them this parable. 
There once was a person who had a fig tree planted in his orchard, and when he came in search of fruit on it but found none, he said to the gardener, For three years now I have come in search of fruit on this fig tree but have found none, so cut it down. Why should it exhaust the soil? He said to him in reply, Sir, leave it for this year also, and I shall cultivate the ground around it and fertilize it. It may bear fruit in the future. If not, you can cut it down. To summarize, the survival of those who were not struck down in the tragedies mentioned in the first section of this passage their survival was not a result of their own righteousness, but of the grace extended so that they might yet become closer to God. So it is with the unproductive fig tree. This was summarized beautifully by the eminent New Testament theologian, Father Eugene Leverdier, when he wrote, the vine dresser asks for an additional year during which he will provide the tree with special care. Perhaps the vine dresser's intervention has prevented the multitudes from grasping their situation in the present time. Let them not err, however. If they have not perished or been cut down, it is in view of their possible repentance and not of their righteousness. That's my look at the year C readings for the third Sunday of Lent. There will be, barring any unforeseen obstacles, a separate episode posted in a day or so for those of you who will be hearing the readings from Year A on this Sunday. If you're at my home parish in Tucson, we'll be hearing Year A. Please know that the grace of our loving God is knocking on our doors every moment. I pray you find a way to open the door now and then. Please pray for me in that regard, too. And may God bless you in this moment, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.